Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. My dad had called my mom three minutes after the plane hit. Leading up to 9-11, my dad had kept saying to my mom, I'm going to quit. I want to find my true passion and happiness in life. Pay down the mortgage. He actually had a vacation day the next day. So he calls my mom. My mom picks up the phone and is very surprised to see his cell phone coming on the caller ID. He never called during the day, during work. So she knew something was wrong. Her first instinct was he finally walked out and quit. So he, she picks up the phone and he says, Michelle, give the TV on. We think a uh, small plane hit the building and they're evacuating the tower. My mom goes to say, John, this better not be some sort of sick joke because my dad liked to pull pranks. And the moment he, she says that, the line cuts out. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame and I am your host today. We have Matthew Bocci. Matthew's father was one of the many who lost their lives on September 11th. The news came in a highly censored manner. His mom and uncle told him what they thought was best for his young mind, but it wasn't enough for him. He wanted to understand all of the story. He became obsessed with the images of people jumping from the building and wondered daily if his father had been one of them. He badgered everyone around him, hoping one of them could tell him the truth. Eventually, one person did talk to him, but used it as a means to sexualize assault Matthew and thus began a life of using drugs to cope with devastating loss and psychological trauma. Matthew eventually chose to press charges only to find the legal system failing to find a verdict equal to the crime. It was when he felt like there were no more options and his life was ruined that his father came to him in the form of a sign. And in that moment, he decided to get help. Matthew began speaking in front of high school audiences through the tri-state area, delivering a message of hope and perseverance. The awestruck reception led him to write his debut memoir, Sway, the first story told by a child of 9-11. He is now seven years into his recovery journey with plans to continue writing and speaking about inspiration and resilience. This story was incredibly difficult and incredibly inspirational. And I think it's important for people to hear how this historical event affected so many people, but particularly the families of the people who were in the Twin Towers in 9-11. Furthermore, how predators use opportunities like these to prey on children and how regardless of what you've been through, no matter how traumatic, that there is a way out. I am so impressed by Matthew. It was so lovely meeting him. And I hope that you get as much out of his story as I did. So without further ado, I give you my new friend, Matthew. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Matt, for coming on here and talking to me. Yeah, of course. So you got sober uh, six years ago. Is that right? Seven. 
Just celebrated seven, seven in July. Yeah. Just celebrated seven. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank awesome. you. Awesome. And uh, one of the big pieces of your story, as you, you wrote about in your book, Sway, was the loss of your father. And that kind of kicked off a whole crazy series of events. Can you tell us before we talk you know, in depth about that, can you tell us a little bit what your family like was like before September 11th, 2001? Yeah, sure. Well, so my dad came from very poor background. My grandparents were fresh off the boat from Italy. Actually, my my grandfather, my late grandfather, he was in a forced labor camp, Nazi labor camp, after the axis between Germany and Italy dissipated. He was saved by Americans. He came to the US and he was a very hardworking individual. I learned a lot from him and my dad did as well. So from a very young age, my dad was very successful, but he never... The thing I always respected about my father was that he never flaunted anything. He just had a very humble and understated way of going about things. And at a very young age, it was important to know like we were not getting whatever we wanted. He made sure like you had good grades and you performed well on extracurricular activities and you respected your parents and did chores and things like that, you know, and and my youngest brother, I'm the oldest of four boys. My youngest brother Paul was born in June 2001. I remember like that those two and a half months, roughly three months that it was, we went to uh, our only family vacation as as a whole family. And I know my parents finally felt like that our family was whole and full. My mom had a few miscarriages and she always wanted a girl. And every time she was pregnant, they'd say, oh, it's going to be a girl. And another boy came. And But I just remember that last summer, it was like around this time, we went to the beach and it was just like, just the simplicity of all that, you know? And so everyone looks up to their parents, like a lot of young boys that look up to their dad, but I really feel like I had, um, I had like a really powerful connection with him. I watched like old videotapes and you, I, you could see the love in the videos, you know? And so, um, his death just completely crushed my entire world as it did my whole family. His death was though, it was the start of everything. In your book, you talk about the separate at school, the teacher coming in, separating out the kids whose fathers worked in the trade centers, and then the eventual information getting to you that your dad was in fact in one of the towers. Can you tell us a little bit about that scene from where you start to realize that a plane hit the towers? I had just started fourth grade and the superintendent comes to my classroom. I happened to be in the same classroom as another kid whose dad worked in the World Trade Center, as you said. His dad worked on the 30-something floor. They pull me and the other kid out of the class. And I remember looking back and like seeing the superintendent talking to all my classmates. And then we walked in the hall and were met by each of our younger brothers. My younger brother, Nick, who was, two, who was two years younger than me, and his younger brother, who's two years younger than him. The four of us, they told us that a plane hit our dad's building. They were evacuating the tower and that they were safe. They brought us to this room that we named, the kids named like the game room, where it was like the computer room. And it was like a privilege to go there. And we would only go on like a half day or like days where like summer was approaching, you know, and, or holiday. They had us play video, like computer games. I remember thinking to myself in that moment that it was kind of odd, but then eventually they bring us back to our classes. And that's when I saw like all my classmates staring at me particularly. And I didn't really know why. And I don't know, honestly, to this day, if they had told them anything. I think the word did get around soon, like pretty quickly that like the other kid's dad was safe, but we get brought to our class and then we're just, we stayed in school for the rest of the day. One by one, like kids were getting pulled out of class and brought home. And I found that strange. You know, I was like, why are we staying in school? Because our dad worked there. Why are all these kids leaving? We went home on the bus and we were like the only two kids on the bus. 
when I got home, that's when I realized like this was serious because my whole family was there. My extended family was there and my and family friends, my mom's friends, my dad's friends. As a kid, like you look up to adults and you see them as these like powerful figures and like seeing so many of them crying, I knew something was off. And then I saw the footage for the first time and I realized like this was serious and, you know, I couldn't comprehend any of what I was seeing on TV. So you get home and does your family have information? What, what floor was your dad on? Yeah. So my dad was on the 105th floor of the North Tower, the first building. He had no way of escaping the building. I got asked this recently. I can't recall if I found out that day of the phone calls that he made or if it was like in the days that followed. To be honest with you, I have distinct memories from that day and a couple of days after and then the day they found him and the rest of it is like a blur. What we did know at that point in time, I'll speak on behalf of like my family. My dad had called my mom three minutes after the plane hit. Leading up to 9-11, my dad had kept saying to my mom, I'm going to quit. I want to find my true passion and happiness in life, pay down the mortgage. He actually had a vacation day the next day. So he calls my mom. My mom picks up the phone and is very surprised to see his cell phone coming on the caller ID. He never called during the day, during work. So she knew something was wrong. Her first instinct was he finally walked out and quit. So he, she picks up the phone and he says, Michelle, you have the TV on. We think a uh, small plane hit the, the building and they're evacuating the tower. My mom goes to say, John, this better not be some sort of sick joke because my dad liked to pull pranks. And the moment he, she says that, the line cuts out. She walks to the living room, changes the channel and sees the building on fire. As she starts panicking and starts calling him, calling him. And this all happened within probably like five minutes of the plane hitting. To me, I do think that my father in that moment accepted his fate and knew he wasn't going to get out. In that building, all the staircases were severed. What we found out throughout the years, a lot of them, my father, I think included, were trying to go up to the roof. That roof was supposed to have, it had a helicopter landing spot. They were trying to go up there and, and the roof was locked. Anyone above the impact zone couldn't get out. There was, I did hear and read about stories of people on the impact zone, like right below it, maybe like a window below it. There was a way to get out. But they didn't know. But my dad had no way out. And where it hit the building, the jet fuel just like caught on, everything caught on fire so quickly and the smoke was going up. My mom's calling him. He would pick up the phone, but there was nothing but static. And then he would continue to call. Same thing, nothing but static. And then finally he got through to her and he said, Michelle, I don't know if you can hear me. You love my life. I'll love you forever. And she said, I love you. And that was the last that he spoke to her. The line cut out. And within a couple minutes of that, my uncle, my dad's brother, he was at his parents' house. He found out about everything going on. He, he woke up to my grandmother screaming at the television. She couldn't even get words out. She was just pointing at the TV. And then my uncle ran to the kitchen and called my dad's cell phone. He said probably 50 times, finally got through to him. And my dad picked up the phone and just said, hello, which to me, like really represents him as a person. He wasn't scared. He just was very calm and said, hello. And then my uncle was like, John, John, get out. And he just said, Tony, I love you. And to our knowledge, that's the last person who ever spoke to him on the outside. We knew about those calls. That was it. You know, that was that was all we knew. And then they were just trying to find anything. They were just hearing stories from one family to the next, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I can't even begin to imagine. So as of, you know, fourth grade, 
losing a parent, you make up, not even make up, but you have a narrative around like a whole story and losing a parent as part of a national crisis. And I don't know how exposed you were to that, but there's, there's like a million narratives about your parent, something you're, you experienced, right? Not just something that, that affected everybody. How was the experience? other than obviously terrible, of trying to put any semblance of pieces together while not only your world's falling apart, but all of New York City's world has fallen apart? Yeah, that's a really good question. We didn't go back to school for like almost two and a half weeks, three weeks. That first week, it happened on Tuesday. So that first week we were home. And then within exactly a week, they came to the house and told us that they found them. Didn't know what to do. Like, do you have a funeral or a wake? So when we got that, information. That was when like they started planning that stuff. So yeah, I didn't go back to school for a while. And then when I did go back, it was very weird. I live in a small town and no one else lost a parent. There was one other family in my town that lost their son. He was 23. My dad was his boss. They found them both like very like together pretty much. Besides them, that was it. Like there was no one else. So like I felt like we were like I was labeled. My brothers and I were labeled like, oh, this kid lost that nine eleven. It wasn't like a good feeling, but it was like everyone knew who you were. And my school was very small, but like anything in the town, you just felt like you were kind of spotlighted a little bit. Those first couple of years were challenging. I tried to. My mom really tried to get us to do everything we were doing, sports and everything. Like my best friends to this day, like their families and their parents, like played a huge role in that because they would bring me to all my travel sports, like soccer and stuff. Like my mom didn't have the like capacity to to do it and like raise four young boys. So so that was the way we tried to kind of have some sort of normalcy in life. How it was so sensationalized, that was a challenging aspect of it too. That's where I really suffered because, you know, it's one thing to lose a parent young. It's one thing to lose a parent tragically and suddenly. It's another for like the whole world to be able to see everything. That really affected me the most, I think. And I was really awestruck by the footage that I would see. Now, let's be real. My mom did not want me to see any of it. She made sure like when the stuff was on TV, she didn't want us in the room. But at that time, especially in those early weeks and months, there were so many people in the house all times and they would turn on the TV and like just want to see, hear what the latest you know update was. And then like all they did was replay everything. What did they tell you happened? What, like, what in your mind, how did they explain that to you? And what did you think? I had this conversation with my mom. I don't know if she, I don't remember her actually sitting down with me and doing it, but she sat down with my brother and I and told us that my dad wasn't coming home. I remember asking questions. I saw on TV a replay of someone jumping from the building. I remember that very powerfully. And then as the time went by, I started looking at these books that my mom bought and they had all these images of the day. And I saw one of a person falling. That's when I started to think maybe he did that. Maybe my dad did that. I didn't know anything. But when they came and told us that they found him, they said, they told my mom what they found. And then we were lucky enough to get a phone call with the medical examiner because of our neighbor. He was a dentist who was helping identify by dental records. He made a call for my mom and they called her and told her a lot of details. And the details they provided were that he was more than likely in the staircase when the building came down. I heard that and didn't really quite honestly believe it. I just felt like it was a convenient story. And I was determined to find out more if I, I tried to at least. When we were in therapy, we were doing individual and family. I would draw out images of people 
jumping from the building. Can I ask you something about that? Yeah. Did you want him to have jumped or like was the stair in your mind? Were you preferring this? This is a, that's a weird way to put it, but like, no, no, you know, you were, you were imagining that did that make it better or worse? Was one superior to the other? No. Well, I mean, I think I would have preferred See, this is where it's evolved as I've gotten older, right? Like I would have preferred that he would be in the staircase, but then I'm like, what went down for all that time? That's what I would, that's how I think about it now. I'm like, and I try not to anymore, but that's where my mind goes. Like if he was there, what did he do for all that time? I guess like, I don't know. Philosophically, I've looked at it as like, I think about what I would have done or like how I would have handled it. And it doesn't matter, you know, at the end of the day, what happened because it doesn't change anything. Still, it's the same end result. But yeah, I was so fixated on that. I just couldn't. It was just one of those things I couldn't let go. I don't know. I have a tendency to do that with a lot of things, but like I just couldn't let this one go. It's like I want to find like the happy ending story, if you will. Like, because I don't know if you ever heard of um, the story of the man in the red bandana. His name is Wells Crowther. And he always wore this red bandana. He was a volunteer firefighter and he worked in the South Tower. When the building came down, there was all these survivor reports of, oh, this guy helped me and he had this red bandana on and his family knew immediately this was their son. So then they started sending his photo around and all these people said, yeah, that was the guy who saved me whatever. So I wanted that type of story. Fortunately for me, I would have never gotten it because none of those people got out. You know, so I mean, it's like this thing that you can control or like maybe maybe there's this different narrative I don't know about. And if I knew about it, I could have some semblance of peace. Like it's yeah, it's almost that's what I try to convince myself. Right, right. That makes sense. Like your brain is looking for reason. One of the things that happened for you, which is potentially a little bit different than maybe some of the other people who had an experience who lost someone in the building in the towers was that you were so interested in looking for information and people your family was like okay enough enough we can't talk about this anymore what you know their own coping that you found one person who was willing to talk to you about it and that turned into this whole other trauma can you tell me a little bit about how that came about I started off as strictly talking to my mom and my uncle Tony, my dad's brother. When those conversations definitely hit their hit the wall and they had no desire to talk about it at all. My uncle to this day has it changed him because he me and him are very close and I think he, in a lot of ways he feels as if he let me down because of what happened, what I'm about to go into. But the reality is like he was a kid. Literally he was twenty three years old when my dad died. So what was he gonna do? Like he was just starting law school, like his life was just starting in a sense and you know, he would do as much as he could, you know? So so when it got to a point where they both knew that it was not doing any good for me to talk about that stuff. I had this uncle through marriage who, who did. He encouraged me to talk about it. He lived 15 minutes away. We would see them often. But the thing is, like, and this is how predators work, he had tried for probably almost two years, like grooming me. It's very strange. I've tried to like analyze this for years and in, in therapy and stuff. Like at like 12 years old, like I inherently knew it was what he was trying to do, or like it was relatively easy for me to sort of evade it. Then as I just got so I was in this like dark abyss of this 9-11 stuff that it's all that I thought about. I really believe and I know I know he sensed it. The key realized that was his gateway. So are you saying that for a couple of years you knew he was a predator? Like you sensed that before nine no. eleven? No. I just felt sometimes that like things were off by him. Got it. Okay. You know? 
I just felt like he was like, he had a very dark humor way, like, but no one else, like, like with all my cousins, my older cousins, like he would just be like, like sexual jokes or like say things and like people, everyone would laugh. Like they would say, Oh, that's just his personality. Like, and so it really, when push came to shove, like my mom got remarried. I, I didn't have a good relationship with her then. He was the only one who, in my opinion, was treating me like an adult. I was like a teenager, but as an adult, I had just turned 14 and was a freshman in high school. And like, I felt like I had a lot of responsibility because grew up in this small town. I was very sheltered and I'm like going to take the train to school 45 minutes away. Yeah. Like it was, I just was, I was mature, but like, I also had no street smarts at that time. So he was just there. It wasn't like a thing where like I got close to him and he just did it. Like he knew how to manipulate. Yeah. I would start off with like talking about a girl that I was interested in from school. And and I felt, Oh, I like someone I could talk to about this stuff. And then like, he would say something that was kind of questionable, but I would, all right, whatever. That's kind of weird, but not really think anything of it. For instance, like when I was in eighth grade, like I had this girlfriend, like, you know, we would go back and forth. Like she liked me and then I liked her and whatever. So Valentine's day, he took me to Walmart so I can buy her like a teddy bear and like chocolate and stuff. We were like shopping for that stuff. And then he asked me, he's like, Oh, have you ever fingered her? And I was like, what? Like, you know, like things like that. You know, I was like a kid, you kind of just like, don't really. He could have been like the cool uncle, right? Like it's like. That's how everyone viewed him. So he, he's on my mom's side of the family. My dad's side of the family viewed him as being a good person too for my brothers and I, because he was there. Like he would help out my mom. He would talk to me and my brothers when we were having problems. Like, you know, he would have the difficult conversations that no one wanted to have with a bunch of teenage boys, like things like that. And then, uh. Yeah, I like literally like out of the blue, like I just started talking to him about 9-11 when the way our conversations were typically going, it was talking about my dad in a positive light, always. Stories about my dad that maybe my mom wouldn't know, like guy stories, things like that, you know? And then like literally I started asking him questions about 9-11, my dad, and he would sort of, um, he would like disengage for a quick sec and then like say something that would make me like, he knew what he was saying, it would make me like sit there and like pause internally and like think and be like, is he saying what I think he's trying to say? So that's how it really started was that he was the only one who talked to me about 9-11. And I asked him if he thought my dad jumped and he told me there was no way out. I let it go. And then eventually I asked him again and he told me, yeah, your dad jumped. And literally he was driving me home from soccer practice. And I just sat there and I like froze. And he, within like a minute, reached over and like grabbed me and like that was like the first time he like touched me and stuff and like in that moment i had like no the fight the survivor's instinct was gone put this like crazy like thing in your head and then at the same time does this and you just you basically can't even make sense of up or down no exactly yeah i couldn't and then all that did was in my mind it was like well now i actually have like the fuel because someone finally told me the thing that i've been suspecting the whole entire time and all it did was like because every day i'd come home from school i would go on my computer and i would research the same things 9-11 people hanging out of the building 9-11 people jumping like things like that and i was adamant on trying to find something i would zoom in on all these pictures try to find my dad and so when like he said that to me all i'm thinking is okay now i'm gonna find the photo now I know it's true. But not so about the, him, but not about the him touching you part. I didn't even like process it. Like I, I couldn't even like, so then, you know, like now that I'm like thinking, okay, this guy finally is the only one who's a straight shooter. He's telling me what I like, what I deserve to know. I then, you know, a really bad moment of weakness. I had seen like very graphic photos of like 9-11 related stuff, like stuff that I, a kid shouldn't see. Anyone should see really. I called him and 
because I knew I was like, I cannot tell my mom, she'll kill me. I was like, she will be so mad at me because I was like throwing up. I was like, I felt horrible. And so I call him, tell him he wants to see the image, tells me, I send him the link. And then he just like within, no one was home. I don't even remember what was going on. No one was home. And he just comes over and then that's it. Like I'm sitting there crying hysterically, looking at my computer, pointing at my computer. And that's the first time it actually, like he actually like abused me. I remember feeling like petrified and all this stuff and like so scared, like not knowing what to say and everything. But then I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Like this guy's just the only one who's like honest. And it's just like, I don't know. That's what I'm trying to get to the bottom of after all these years is like the impact that trauma has on the brain with processing things that a 14 year old will know it's wrong, but they're also so easily manipulated too. Like you can, you know, and this is something my, my old therapist used to always say to me, like, cause I used to always get on myself about that. You say, can a 14 year old vote? Can a 14 year old have a alcohol? Can a 14 year old buy cigarettes? Can serve in the military? Yeah. So I used to be so hard on myself about that. And that's why I never wanted to say anything about it in the first place. So you're, when you were hard on yourself, you're hard on yourself because you didn't stop it or tell someone or the both of them. Cause I, there was a moment where I wanted, I was going to tell my mom. There was a moment I remember where I was going to tell my uncle Tony, my dad's brother, and I just couldn't do it. I was just like, I can't, I'm like, I'm not doing this. He made it so clear to me, like I'm heterosexual, but he was like, if you do this, everyone's gonna think you're gay. I went to all boys prep school. You got, you walk around and kids are calling everyone gay. I was like, I can't allow that to like be the case. Right. So he, he said that to you. He said, he said that, yeah, he said that to me and he told me, he's like, no one will think I'm, no one's going to say I'm gay because I'm married. You know, they'll say you're gay. I'm like, okay. He knew all the things to say. And honestly, like clearly it works. I didn't say a word for 10 years, 10 years. I didn't say anything. So did that abuse continue on or was it? It went on for over a year, roughly. It was like from when I was like 14 to like approaching 16. The thing is, it was like very spread out, you know, because what's he going to do? Like, you know, come to my family's house, like when everyone's here, like, you know, he was very smart about it. I hate to say it. It's like he knew the way to get me alone. And then it's like at that point in time, when when it occurs, you just, you're like, ah, what am I going to do? Am I going to say something like to someone as a boy, a, a growing boy, it just removes all power. It really does. One thing I hear a lot from particularly, you know, young men who are sexually abused by another man is that, and I want to, I'm bringing this up in case someone's listening and, you know, or knows someone who's struggling, their sexual identity gets really rattled because of this experience that has nothing to do with their sexual identity because it's being hijacked. But Nonetheless, because of the culture that we grow up in, because of there's this total confusion of like, does this make me gay? Am I, if I didn't stop it, am I gay? If I like all these different things. And then this just absolute confusion, the heterosexual boys are like, but I don't, I don't know how to make sense of this. Did you experience that? I never questioned my sexuality, but I questioned, I always wondered like what would happen if I said something. So like I talked about that recently with someone thinking about like, did it affect me with women in general? And I think to a degree it did at first, but cause I, I was kind of guarded when it came to like getting close to people. And like, I didn't want sexually, I mean, like I didn't want them to like get too close. Cause I'm like, oh, they're going to do something I don't want them to do or whatever. But you're definitely right. Like it can certainly warp your like thinking with that. And that's why a lot of guys don't say anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
And he also, at, from my hearing of the story, he also coupled, right? He, he, we always say things that fire together, wire together, right? And so he couples this grief and curiosity and tragedy that you have immediately, like he, so that you were, your brain is somewhere else. And so he's coupling those two things. Have you been able to pull them apart? Yeah, I have. I mean, the thing is, like, that was one of the more compelling aspects, I hate to say it, but of the whole entire court case, because it wasn't your typical cut and dry. Like, quite frankly, had I not gone down that road of obsession with 9-11 and, in my opinion, addiction, I don't know if it would have ever happened, to be honest, with him. I think that I would have had to somehow had the wherewithal to stop it or try to fight it or say something, you know, immediately after that first encounter in the car. Then again, it makes it proves my point where it's like he didn't try to do it to my brother who was a couple of years younger than me. He did it to me for a reason. It takes a really sick person, someone who is like, mind you, extremely close to my father to use his death in that way and the way it damaged a kid for your own personal pleasure. So at this point in my life, yeah, I've been able to pull them apart, but at the same time, if there was no 9-11, there probably would have been no abuse. I don't say the same, though, when it comes to my addiction or alcoholism, because I believe the way I reacted to 9-11 in general proves my point that that's how I'm wired individually. Like, that's who I am. You know, I'm an, I'm an addict. Would you say that your first addiction was to yeah. this, this story? What was what came next? Weed. I mean, I was drinking and smoking, I'm going to say recreationally, in high school. Now, the problem is like drinking never had the hold that opiates and other narcotics like that had on me. So in high school, I drank, started drinking when I was 14, eighth grade graduation party. I didn't like it. I liked the feeling, but I didn't like I was throwing up so much and all that. In high school, it's like, oh, you party, you're drinking, you're smoking, whatever. Like it's fun. When I got to college, yeah, I was smoking by that point every day, but like I was not it was like one of those things I could like almost take it or leave it, I guess. Like I wasn't mentally like so locked into it like that. But then um, my sophomore year, I did half of a 30 milligram oxycodone pill. And that feeling I got was everything I had ever been searching for. And I knew immediately, I was like, this is just too good to be true. I'm I, All the things that I had been feeling and suffering with for so long, they all went away. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is just, this is amazing. And I was like, I'm just going to continue to chase this high forever. But yeah, those pills were really truly like the start of it all for me in terms of addiction. I think that it's no accident that pain medication that, you know, was the thing that soothed our hearts, souls, minds, because we were in pain. It just was a different type of pain. But the pain medication was the thing that worked that made us feel better. And I, I don't think that's an accident, right? Like it was an analgesic for our broken hearts. I like that's Yes, exactly. So sophomore year, you find opiates, opiates find you. And that is, you know, the chemical answer that you have been looking for this whole time. How do you get through college and still using or what does your using look like? I get through college miraculously. I'm addicted to blues and Xanax. I did a lot of coke, but those two were what I was doing the most. Opiates and, and benzos. Didn't matter what benzo was really. I just you get to the point with those where you can die if you don't have them. That's really where things started to fall off for me because I would be perpetually blacked out and not even know it. So there are a lot of periods in college that I do not remember certain things. I had to have my friends 
recount stories because I couldn't, I'd be like, is this a dream or did this actually happen? And they'd be like, no. But yeah, so I graduated on time, fully addicted, went on a family vacation to Jamaica in July of 2014. I had just signed my first job offer, finance job in New York City. I was determined to follow my dad's footsteps, got my signing bonus, spent six grand on, I think I spent like, I bought like 120 blues and I brought like 80 Xanax bars. And I smuggled them with me to Jamaica. Oh, you are a lucky boy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I start my career fully addicted to everything. I want to make one comment and then question. So one comment is for people listening, benzodiazepines, clonopin, Xanax, Ativan, Valium, you can die from detoxing from those. If you are using mm-hmm. them every day, please do not stop using them without doctor supervision. That goes the same with alcohol. People, healthy people drop dead. I always want to just put that out there for people. No, you have to. Yeah, because people try to stop on their own. So like, what does the bottom look like for you when the bottom's falling out? It's not working anymore. You want to go to detox. So I ended up going to a place in New Hampshire. And a lot of people would like poke fun at me and say, oh, you didn't have like that low of a bottom. You know, I mean, I had no money to my name. I pretty much would have been homeless if it wasn't for my mom being gracious enough to have me at their house. At the end, okay, so I get arrested in November of 2014. I'm charged with three felonies. Fast forward to April 2015, I get put on probation in New Jersey. They tell me I'm going to have two drug tests in a year. So it's a year-long probation. More than likely, I'm going to have one first six months, second, second six months, pass them both. I'm good to go. I get the notice for the first one in June. At this point in time, I'm working at a job where I'm not making any money. I literally have to pass these exams in order to start making money. And so I'm trying to figure out on a daily basis how I can get money. As you know, addiction is a job in and of itself. I'm still selling drugs like I was back in November, but it wasn't enough to keep up my habit. I go into this into this drug test. You know, every single day, it was like, wake up, have barely enough left to wake up and get my day started. And now it's like, it's 9 a.m. I'm in New York. Okay, where am I going to get money before noon to get something? Who am I going to try to, you know, borrow money from whoever? You know, like I owed so many people money. I had this half-assed attempt at killing myself. If I did it with the same amount of pills that I did with dope, I probably would have died. But I tried killing myself at my grandma's house. I snorted like 12 blues in a line, 10, 12 blues in a line, took a bunch of Xanax, made sure just in case, keep a little bit if I wake up in the morning. And I woke up the next day, I got high and started that day. And that was in, um, that was in mid-July. So I kept telling myself, okay, my drug test is scheduled for July 22nd. I'm going to stop after my birthday, which is in June. Don't stop. Hit July. Okay, I'm going to stop after the 4th of July. You know, keep going and going and going. My friend tells me, listen, you're going to have a mouth swab test. You go in there, you drink this little detox mouthwash. We'll go buy it together. Switch it around, swallow it. Gives you clean saliva for 45 minutes. I'm like, okay. So we go to the smoke shop. I buy it, buy two little vials of it. And I buy two bags of synthetic urine. And I tell myself, all right, listen, like I'm prepared. The day of the test, I leave the urine at my house, get to the place, I get high right before I leave. Drink the mouth. Yeah, this is just like, it's, I know, it's terrible. It's, terrible. Well, it's amazing. You have the wherewithal to like get the fake urine, although you don't have like a like one of the devices. You have the wherewithal yeah. to like get the mouthwash. So like you care enough, but just not like that's, that's why I'm laughing. It's like, we're, we're inconsistent. 
Exactly. Yeah. So I walk into the exam, into the waiting room. I check in. They say, okay, just wait here. We're going to call you in in a minute. And I'm looking at my watch. I keep seeing like, okay, now it's like 30 minutes of clean saliva now, 25 minutes, 20, 15. Finally, they call me in. I got about 10 minutes left. I'm sitting across the desk from her. And on her keyboard, there's the mouth swab in the package. And I'm thinking immediately, I sit down, I think, I look at it and I'm like, this is going to be the easiest con I ever pulled off. She's like, when's the last time you got high? I'm like, oh, like a month ago. She's like, okay, are you going to pass this drug test? I was like, yeah. She's like, are you sure? I was like, yeah. She's like, okay. She grabs the cup and she's like, go pee in the cup. I go into the bathroom and the guy comes in the bathroom with me and he's supposed to watch me through the mirror to make sure I don't have a device. And he looks, he's like looking the other way. And I'm like, this fucker. I'm like, I could have gotten away with this. So I popped for like opiates, benzos, THC alcohol, Coke, Oxy is its own thing. I popped up for that. And so I go back in there and the lady says to me, um, you know, you've known about this test for so long. Like, I don't know, like if this is a cry for help or you genuinely can't stop. And I was like, I was like, no, I really want to stop. Like, I want to get help. I want to be sober. And she said, okay, fine. Come back in one month. And if you're clean, I'll drop your charges. Now you're going to go to jail. I said, okay. I went home. This is where it all kind of hit me at once. Like I, I never referred to myself as an alcoholic because I didn't drink every day. And if I drank, I drank at night, but I made myself a drink and I rolled myself a joint and I walked out on my back patio. I remember like holding the joint in my hand and like looking up in the sky and like just seeing this beautiful blue sky day. And it reminded me of the morning of September 11th. And I said, dad, I was crying. I said, dad, please give me a sign. I need help. When my dad passed away, my mom was told to look for the signs. Shortly thereafter, a fly landed on her nightstand and stayed in our house for six months after 9-11 and was our sign throughout the years. You know, we'd get this visit and we would know and we'd all comment on it and say it, you know. So um, in July 2015, the fly lands on the railing I'm leading against and it's moving in a circle and stopping it and looking at me, moving again and again and again. And I filmed it on my phone, one, because I was extremely high and I wanted to make sure I wasn't imagining it. And two, because I didn't want to forget. And I put the joint down. I said, all right, that's it. I'm going to go. I'm done. Walked inside. I called up a detox and I said, listen, I'm not sober. I need a bed tonight. They said, we can't get you until Friday. I said, okay, fine. I'll take the bed. I wrote this long note to my mom saying all the things that she suspected. I committed like credit card fraud on her cards. She was fighting and like all this stuff. And I said, I'm going to get help. I'm going to treatment on Friday. And that's my sobriety date, July 24, 2015. And yeah, I mean, it was not easy when I got the detox. I'll tell you, I knew I needed to go to a 30 day after I had gotten out of it every time. This time I knew and I, I didn't fight it at all. I just, I wanted, I wanted help. Like I actually really wanted for the first time to be clean. They say, you say like, get so sick and tired of being sick and tired. Like I hated the monotony of my life. Like it was horrible. So kind of flashing, you know, coming full circle, how did the lawsuit against your uncle come up? Were you sober at that time? And and what did that look like? Yeah, I was sober. I was 23 years old still. I started doing, I had my first sponsor was like I had to go through the my fourth and fifth step over the span of three days. He made me put every single person on there, and I didn't put my uncle on there. You did um, not. I did not. Okay. Day three comes around. The night before, he had actually texted me saying something that I. He just said like that he missed me or it was like something like that. I was like, this is you know, and it definitely affected me. I didn't want to admit it then, but it did. The next day, my sponsor said, "Are you sure there's no one you left off?" And I said, "Yeah, there is." And that, of course, was like the whole entire thing. 
people you're resentful for, like this a-hole from high school who like call me like a nerd or like, you know, yeah. and yeah, yeah. I leave and, you know, I leave like the biggest one off. So I go into that. He made me go in and speak with my case manager at the sober house. And they made me like block his number or like do something like that. And then start setting up ways to help me. I was going home for an immense trip. And the way it worked was you'd leave on Monday. You could leave on Monday after you took your drug test. So you clean. Okay. You gotta be back by Friday to take another drug test. I do that. I leave. And he tells me, listen, while you're gone, I want you to tell your mom what happened. It's going to be tough, but you got to do it. Leading up to that trip, my brother had called me. He had said some stuff about my uncle and was like telling me like, don't let my youngest brother go over there by himself. And I was like, what happened? And he, he's like, nothing, nothing. Just, you know, don't let him, ha- don't let him do it. And I was like, very taken aback by that. Texted him, my uncle immediately. I was like, leave them alone. I, if I find out you did anything, like it's not going to end well for you. I tried like to not do anything. Like I did not want to do what ended up happening. So I go home and I don't talk to my mom about it at all, of course. And then on the last day, I am supposed to meet my uncle for lunch. I end up going to my high school to visit two of my teachers, my guidance counselor being one of them. And he and I were very close. He helped me through my addiction or tried to many times. He knew I was sober. I don't even go to this inside the school. Normally I'd walk in the school, walk around. As I'm walking up to the building, he walks out. He's like, let's, let's go off campus. I don't know what, this was like total God moment. We go meet and I kid you not, like he was the one person really in my whole life, besides my mom, that I wanted to tell in high school because he was like the one person I would talk to all the time. He's like my therapist and it just came out. I told him everything. And he's like, you need to call your uncle Tony now and tell him what happened. And so I get back to the campus, get my car, get in the car, call my uncle. And and I tell him, and he's like, I'm in Englewood right now, which is the last place I was with your dad before he died two weeks prior. And he's like, I'm going to meet you at your house and we're going to tell your mom together. And we did. My uncle is a lawyer. So he tells me I have a case and it's up to me if I want to, to do it. And I said, yeah, I, I do. Because like of that call from my brother, honestly. Did, was something happening with your brother or your brother? Did he ever tell you what that was? Uh, nothing occurred. We thought maybe something did, but no, nothing occurred. I do think he was like on his way to trying. He had said a couple of the same things he would say to me, but nothing happened. Thank God. That being said, I think there was more. Not in my family, but I think there was there was rumors that we heard, like stories that we heard from the police and stuff. I make the call. I go to the police station with my my dad's brother, my uncle. I tell them what happened. And again, so powerful how the brain works. I couldn't tell them how old I was. I couldn't give them a definitive way of knowing I was 14 years old. The difference between saying I was 14 versus saying I could have been 17, which I knew I wasn't, but it changes the way the charges go. So they initially charge him with second degree, which characterizes it as an individual from 16 to 18 years old. So that's the first charge. And I go back to New Hampshire and um, I remember, oh, I know how I can prove I was 14. And I went back and they charged him now with first degree. So he got both charges. He admitted to everything, every single thing. He admitted to every single thing. He knew, he must have known, watched a million crime shows or something. I don't know what he did. He just knew not to give them any way of knowing how old I was. That was his way of trying to like play the system. Yeah. So this is all my first year of sobriety. I was going back and forth. Yeah. And it was a lot. I never wanted to get high, to be honest with you, during that. Somehow I had the strength to say, like, I'm doing this for myself. I'm doing this for any other kid. You know, I'm just trying to be a voice to stand up for what's right. Um, Did it feel like a weight was lifted off in some way? Because you went from telling no one to like... (laughs) The whole world? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was really... I mean, that's a fast transition. 
Yeah, it felt like that for sure. You know, it was like just no one believed, like no one could believe it. You know, he tried saying, oh, he's lying. He's doing this to get off the drug charges. Like, you know, I'm like, well, that's not really how it works. Like they want you to jam up a dealer. They don't want you to make up that your uncle's a pedophile. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, he tried doing that, but like people were just so flabbergasted because they just couldn't understand. Like they're like him, like of all uncles, like the one who like seemed to be, to be looking out. And it's like we said, like they hide in plain sight. Like literally there were so many people who got close to my brothers and I, like guys, like camp counselors, things like that. And though my uncle Tony and that uncle would be the ones to step in and say, stay away from the, the kids. All along, the real predator was the one who was like protecting us. How did the case end up wrapping up? So that was a decision I made where they called me and they said, we can offer him a plea deal. Now, here's the thing. We had him on a recorded line. I went to the police station, the victims unit, and it felt like I was like in like a law and order episode, like a kid. I was like in a little kid's room and got him on a recorded line. This is where I got him to admit everything, age included. He asked me probably five, six times, are you recording this? Are you recording this? I got him to admit everything. And with all that proof and evidence, they felt like the prosecutors felt like maybe they didn't have a strong enough case anyway, which was crazy to me. But they called me and they said, listen, we can give him a plea deal and he'll go to prison for 10 to 15 years. Guaranteed. He'll plea out like he's got, he'll, he'll go to prison. Like there's no trial. Like you don't have to go back and forth. Like he's going to go to prison versus a trial. He could get acquitted. And I was like, okay, yeah. And my uncle Tony freaked because he was like, it doesn't matter that he's an adult, like talking on behalf of me, like he's fragile. And like they, and they did, they did lie to me, to be honest. The reality is the plea deal meant his first degree charges were getting dropped and he was only going to be charged with second degree. And that meant the max he would go to prison was between five to seven years. As opposed to facing 25 plus years, he was now facing five to seven. There was nothing we can do at that point. Just had to go to the sentencing and I got my family to write letters to the judge. I spoke in the court. My mom spoke. My uncle Tony spoke. That other uncle, he's known as Phil in the book. It's a fake name, but he said like two words, but he got sentenced to seven years and then he ended up serving just under four years. And he got released right before my book came out, like literally two years ago. Now, I mean, look, he's got Megan's Law. He's a convicted sexual predator, a felon. He's registered, all that. But yeah, I mean, it's just, I feel like they kind of let me down a little bit, to be honest, like the justice system with that. But I did what I needed to do. Yeah, yeah. With your sobriety today, there's so many different pieces of the world that touch on your life, you know, from terrorism to the justice system to, you know, childhood sexual trauma. When you think about like what you stand for and staying sober and what that means to you, what is today like and how how have you kind of made any peace with any of this? I do it on a daily basis, honestly. A lot of what I do career-wise is speak at schools. That to me has been the most rewarding thing in my life in many ways um, because I always knew I wanted to help people. I didn't know how. I think really what where I feel like I help kids especially is that um, they're so used to being lectured about drugs and alcohol and all that stuff, right? Like my story has all of that, but they also... They get to hear from someone like go, who went through a lot of a lot of stuff to be vulnerable, and to me, that's what's helped me the most. Talking about all the stuff that goes on in my head, because I know for a fact if it stays in my head, the only one who's going to be suffering is me, and then everyone else around me will suffer because I will be not a good person. I find that getting it off my chest just 
allows me to be staying in that peace in that in that serene moment because if i don't like you know it's like i go crazy and i think most importantly i don't know i just i feel like that's my purpose in life now it's to be a voice for all of this stuff you know and like you don't really get a lot of men who openly talk about trauma sexual trauma emotional trauma loss and when you get sober it's very easy i feel to talk about addiction it's easy to talk about the war stories right when I tell my story at a meeting, like I don't talk about like what I did. I don't say, oh, I did 30 pills a day and whatever, this amount this day, you know, like it's irrelevant. To me, it's I tried to find that escape every day. And so now I'm facing everything head on. But that's my goal on a daily basis is to face everything that I went through head on. And I know in doing so, I have that growth. So tools wise, so it sounds like sharing your story, like giving it away, Doing it away. Um, giving it away, you know, going and being part of meetings where other people are getting whatever's in your head out of your head. I think that's such a great like pen, pen paper, talking to somebody. People don't realize like how much that makes a difference just to, you know, say like, I just say this out loud. Are there other tools that you use with regard to your trauma that you've picked up in therapy that you found really helpful? So meditation. Now, I on my list, I'm in the process of moving, on my list when I get situated is EMDR therapy. I've been wanting to do that for years. I stayed with the same therapist for like six years, finally broke that off. It's like worse than a breakup sometimes. So now that's my next, that's what I want to look into. I'm really big into readings, like The Body Keeps the Score, for instance, like that, like trauma books. I like to read about trauma, the, the effects on the brain. I like to read spiritual readings every day. But meditation for me doesn't always have to just be like, the Zen, like Buddha type of meditation. It's about literally closing my eyes and just the actual practice of meditation is just to focus on your breathing, you know? And then once you find your mind slipping off, focus on your breathing again. And that practice naturally calms the body. So I feel that like prayer and meditation are huge in my sobriety. If you want to go to an in-person meeting and you can't hit it, if you can't hit a Zoom meeting in that moment, like you have to have those toolkit, that toolkit at home too, you know, on the go, like what can you do? So for me, it's a 10 step writing things out, trying to pull myself away and like cool down and read or focus on, on meditation and prayer, giving it trusting in my higher power. You actually, you talked about using your dad as your higher power. What does that look like for you? Now I try to still go pray on my knees, but I will often sit in a room and talk to him as if he was like right there. And then there's times I, I do a, a prayer, you know, a more guided prayer, but I try to keep it simple with that one. I don't, I never wanted to overcomplicate it. I knew I didn't want to have like God, traditional God. I grew up Catholic, but I didn't, I didn't want that. And my sponsor was like, just anything but yourself. And it's like, all right, my dad. And I had so many visits from that fly in that first year at the sober house after my sixth step and going to my seventh step, all like moments that just solidified it for me, you know? Well, your book is called Sway and it can be found wherever books, wherever you buy your books. I saw that you also had uh, an audio book and, and then your website where you tell people where they can find you. It's Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W, John, J-O-H-N, Bocci.com, B-O-C-C-H-I. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being here, for sharing your story. It's, it's a really incredible story. And I'm amazed and inspired by what you've done and how you've turned things around and how you live your life. So thank you for being part of my community and our community and, and leading the way. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Awesome. Well, Scott, that was incredible. This is sort of one of those 
speechless kinds of episodes where, I mean, honestly, everything about it, it was like his story is just so powerful. Honestly, just watching the video of his, like even his setting, even the room he was sitting in. Oh yeah, like, his dad's office. His dad's office. There's an American flag in the background. It's kind of dim. I don't know. There's just something about the whole tone of all of it where you're like, I can't believe this story. And I also just, if this were me, I'm not going and telling the world about it. I, I just admire him for what that means for people and what we have so many inspirational stories on the show and they're all inspirational, but this is one where it's just sort of like struck me by how the enormity of all of it, like it's just, it's massive what he had to overcome. The thing that's interesting to me about his story, I mean, again, aside from all the things that you're saying, which are I, I, I would echo, is the different aspects. It, it encompasses all the aspects of humanity, right? It encompasses the, the best parts of humanity, of people, of, of 9-11, of people showing up for each other, of firefighters and families and and the worst parts of humanity of terrorism and abuse sexual assault it is so mind-boggling of all the like crazy stories i have heard where someone has taken advantage of a child which sadly i've heard many many of them this one just unimaginable to me then he he files against him in court and says no you're not gonna fucking hide from this and he's like newly sober it's just really incredible. He goes from telling no one to being... And, and I think that is... I think he did that because he felt so much relief in talking about it. Like there was clearly relief experienced from each person that he spoke to despite the pain of it. And I think that is something that people don't realize when they're holding that secret, when it's buried deep down inside that it is festering and that when it comes out, what happened? Yeah, it's super scary and painful, but it's nowhere near as scary and painful as holding that deep inside. And that sometimes you got to do the right thing, even if you know, the guy gets out of jail, like the fact that he did that, the fact that he got out of jail, but he's still on the sex offender list. Like there's still value that came from it. And this story is just the courage is really striking to me. The courage he finds a well of courage deep down and starts pulling from it. And that's that's the Matthew that we get today. And it's really, really beautiful. Yeah. It's sort of like the, um, I'm going to butcher this, but is it is it the sunlight is the best antiseptic? Is that the phrase? Something like that? It's sort of like by getting all of it out there, by, by putting it all like in the harsh light of day, I think that's maybe been able to provide as much healing as could be provided in a situation as, as hard as this. His road to healing, a big part of it, to your point, is, is uh, bringing that out into the light and being like here is all of it and it's because it's not his shame that's no. the thing is that people hold on to these secrets and it's like they have so much shame about it it's like it's not your shame it's not yours to hold on to this isn't your you know disgust this isn't your mistake and i think that's what when you hold on to it like it is and you let it get infected and fester then the only thing you're doing is becoming the person who's holding on to it and that's the part where people get sicker and sicker and sicker and they get confused as to who should the shame and guilt belong to and it doesn't belong to him none of it does it's just a really multi-layered story of courage i just hope people hear that and think to themselves 
okay, like if he can do it, like I can do it. If he can, maybe that, maybe that thing I'm thinking about or I'm hiding, I can talk about. Maybe that's not my shame that I'm holding on. I feel shame, but it's not my shame. You know, whatever the circumstances, whatever thing you can relate to, obviously it's really important to look for the similarities, not the differences and stories. And I just think there's so much to be learned. And frankly, I was inspired truly by him and, and what he's done. This is one that I sort of want to just let it resonate with you. Just like kind of let it sit. We're not going to do a joke today. Sorry. (laughs) But uh, what I think might be helpful is to just, if there's something that you feel like needs to be brought out into the, into the sunlight, maybe you can use this as your springboard, as your opportunity, as your inspiration. Yeah. I was going to say, if you feel compelled, if you have something that you want to get off your chest and there's no one in your life, you can tell, feel free to send us a message. We will hear you and keep that to ourselves. And we are open to just being one person on the planet who holds your secret so that you don't have to. Our email is podcast at lionrock.life, L-I-O-N-R-O-C-K dot L-I-F-E. Please feel free to email us. If you were touched by this episode, we would love for you to write a review and tell us what this meant to you. Matthew would love to hear that. Thank you. Thank you for listening and we will see you soon. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.